if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah 63, let's just bow our heads in prayer, and Father, we just ask once again as a church, Lord, that we just acknowledge your presence here and your goodness to us, and I also ask, Father, that uh, you'll just help me to speak this word of encouragement to our congregation here, Lord, that we can all be encouraged that, that you will be with us in our times of trial, and I thank you that you'll do that for us tonight, and that you'll be here with us and manifest your presence to us through your word, and I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Isaiah 63, and beginning in verse 7, and Isaiah writes this, he says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. And he writes, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and bare them and carried them all the days of old. So this section of scripture that we're reading, starting in verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter, it's a prayer. It's the beginning of a prayer that Isaiah prays on behalf of the children of Israel. And he's praying this in light of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. So the temple and the holy city have been laid waste. This is what this prayer, the context of this prayer. And Isaiah has a deep concern for the glory of God in this city and the people of Israel for the Lord's sake. So it's like this. What if our church, we have a new building, we build a new building, and one day the government comes and says, look, you know, your all's religion is worthless, and you guys are just superstitious, and we're going to tear this church down. And so where's this God of yours anyways? You know, he's, he's not helping you any of this healing, delivering, almighty, powerful God. Where is he? And they bring their wrecking crews in, and they just demolish this building and lay it waste. And all that's left is a pile of rubble. And then our people are scattered and they say, we're forbidding you all to ever meet again. Y'all are not allowed to meet anymore. And I think if that ever happened, I think our reaction would be like those of Isaiah. So if you go back one chapter to chapter 62, and this is a prayer of Isaiah in light of Jerusalem laying waste. He says in chapter 62, verse 1, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. He's saying, I'm not going to let up. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. And thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and the land Beulah, for the Lord delights in thee, and thy land shall be married. But for a time there, they were called a people that were forsaken, and their land was called desolate. And he is brokenhearted over this, over Jerusalem and the state of his people. And he's like, I am not holding my peace until the circumstances are changed. Because my, God's people, my people, they're being mocked. They're being mocked. They're said that 
God's just forsaken you, and he's left your land desolate. But a lot of times on a personal level, don't we sometimes feel like that? That just as the world looked at Jerusalem and said, you're forsaken and desolate, and our circumstances and our own feelings are telling you, you've been forsaken by God. He's left you desolate. So you wake up each morning, and you look at your surroundings, you look at your circumstances, and you're like, if God loved me, how did I end up here? Whatever your situation is, it could be something at school, could be something at home, could be something at work. And you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I can understand chastisement, but how did he allow my life to get this messed up, my circumstances to be this messed up? And you're telling yourself, it's just hard for me not to think that God hasn't forsaken me, no matter how hard I try. Or we could be looking around, where are the gifts in our church? Where's the book of Acts? Where are we seeing that here? Where's the joy and rejoicing of God's people? And sometimes it seems that way. One time there was a survivor of a shipwreck, and he's the only one that made it to this uninhabited island. So after a few days of being on that island, he managed to build himself a hut, and in that hut he placed everything that he managed to save from the wreck. And every day he prayed to God for deliverance. And as he prayed, he scanned in the horizon to see where is this ship coming that God's going to send to save me. And one day, though, he's praying day after day, doesn't see that ship. And one day, he's going out and hunting for food. And when he comes back, there's his hut. Everything the man has is in flames, burning up. Everything in smoke. And he decided right then, he said, God's forsaken me. And he sank on his knees, he buried his face in the sand, and he said, God, how could you do this to me? Why have you abandoned me? Because that's the way it seemed. And he just sat down on that shore in the sand, depressed. And guess what? After a little bit, he looks up, and here he sees a ship coming to his rescue. And you know what the captain told him? He said, well, we saw your smoke signal. That's the only way we knew somebody was on this island. So the sight of that ship coming would have been like the words of Isaiah the prophet to the people of Israel. So look in chapter 62, verses 11 and 12. Look what Isaiah says. He says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your ship's coming. Behold, thy salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And look what he says at the end. And they shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. That was the word they were given. So that man thought God had forsaken him, but really God was seeking him out, wasn't he? To rescue him by the very fire that he thought pointed to his desolation. It didn't. And sometimes, you know, in our distresses and the hard times we're going and that we're suffering through, you think you've been forsaken by God. But in your prayers, in that crying out to God for answers, what's going on here, right? You're sending that smoke signal up to the Lord. And he'll send that answer in a way, just like that man, you would never expect. Had quit looking for. So I'm kind of getting up to our verses here to chapter 7. But we move into chapter 63. And those first verses there, 1 to 6, that's exactly what happened to Israel, or will happen. That's how God answers 
Israel's end time smoke signal. So I don't want to get into all that verses 1 to 6 right now, but they're talking about that the Lord, we talked about it last week actually with talking about Israel. It's talking about when the Lord Jesus comes to deliver Israel in the end times and when it appears all hope is gone for them, right? Like the man on the island, everything had gone up in smoke. That's the situation Israel is in. And that's what these first six verses of chapter 63 are talking about, an end-time prophecy. When the beast and all the nations have surrounded Israel to utterly destroy her. But that's not what happens. What happens is the Lord appears with his saints, and it talks about the fury of the Lord stomping the winepress. And it's all over the robes, except this isn't going to be the winepress. It's not going to be grapes. And grape juice on them, it's going to be what? The blood of the nations will be on the robes of the Lord. So it's going to be wrath on the nations, but guess what it's going to be? Deliverance for his people. We talked about that last time. So look there in verses 4 to 6 of Isaiah 63. He says, for it will be the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of the redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength in the earth. And that's what's going to happen in the end. That's Zechariah 14, Revelation 19. So what he's telling them here is there's going to come a time when total deliverance will come for Israel, but that's the future. Because what are they looking at right now? Right now they're saying we're looking at a city that is laid waste and is desolate. And they need God's presence and help now. So beginning in verse 7, what we just began reading, he prays a prayer for God to come and help them. And it goes, like I said, all the way through to the end of chapter 64. So look at verses 15 to 19, and you'll see what I mean. This is the end of the prayer. But he says, Isaiah prays, look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. Are they restrained? In other words, look at us, Lord. Do you no longer have mercy and bowels of mercy towards us? Are they held back? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham forgot us and is ignorant of us. And Israel doesn't acknowledge us, Jacob. He said, but still, God, O oh Lord, you are our Father, our Redeemer, and thy name is from everlasting. O oh Lord, why have you made us to err from thy ways and hardened our hearts from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thine inheritance, the people of thy holiness have possessed it. But a little while, our adversaries, now he's saying, we had this land for a little while, but now our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. He says, we are thine. Thou never bear rule over them. They are not called by thy name. So he's saying, this is where we're at, Lord. We need you to come and help. Is your mercy shut up forever, he's asking him there? Right? He's pleading on behalf of Israel to God. Look down from your holy sanctuary. Just have mercy on your people. Look what our adversaries, they've trodden us down. And these people now that are living on their land, you've never ruled over them. They've never been called your people. And there they are in your land. Oh, God, have mercy on us. That's what he's saying. But I want to go back to the beginning of this prayer, back in verses 7 to 9, how he starts off. 
And he starts off saying in verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. So when he talks here about, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord, he's talking about, that's what these watchmen have been doing on the walls. Reminding God of his faithfulness and his love to Israel. So once again, for the last, then go back to chapter 62, verses 6 and 7. And God says, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make what? Mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest until he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise on the earth. And so what are these watchmen doing? They are on those walls constantly on behalf of Israel, bringing up the Lord's loving kindness, his mercy towards them, that these are his people, the goodness of the Lord towards Israel, making mention of that and giving him no rest. Look at what's happened to us, Lord. Where is your goodness? Where is your mercy? We need that. They're just going endlessly, and it blesses God. It's persistence. They're saying, we are not going to leave you alone until we experience once again your goodness, your loving kindness, your mercies. And what we see here is that is the biblical way. Where we, how we see Isaiah opening that prayer, that's a biblical way to open your prayers to the Lord. So a lot of times, and I tend to do this, we'll just jump right into our situation, won't we? But if you go through the Lord's Prayer in your mind before you pray, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Amen. The Lord's holy. And give him his due before you pray, before you get into asking for your daily bread. And we see that in this prayer here. He doesn't jump into, hey, help us. We just read that at the end. But he starts in saying, this is the God you are. This is the God you've been to us. And that's what we need to do when we pray. Remind God of who he is how he's blessed us, of his faithfulness. You know, when Daniel prayed, this is how he prayed. He said, I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And he said, and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, and here's how Daniel, who was a godly man, started his prayer. He said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, to them that keep his commandments. And then he starts in to his request. We have sinned and we have committed iniquity. And then he asks God for mercy. But he starts off saying, you are the great and dreadful God. The one that keeps covenant and faithfulness. The one that shows mercy to those that fear you. That's the way to start a prayer. God's a being, a living being. We're not just praying to the air. And we need to acknowledge him for his greatness. So Daniel, when he said that prayer, he was praying while he was in captivity. And this prayer we're reading of Isaiah here in Isaiah 63, 7, he's praying when everything is devastated. And that's what we can learn. No matter what our circumstances are, we need to remind ourselves, don't we, like he's doing here. Things are devastated. Things are wasted. But we need to remind ourselves and the Lord through our prayers that, hey, it may look bad, but you still have loving kindness that you've given us goodness that you've bestowed and you're plenteous in mercy remind god of that and reminding him you're going to be reminding yourself and encouraging yourself that way 
And so that's what we read here in verse 7. He talks about his great goodness, his abundant mercies, and his loving kindness. And everything here that he talks about in this verse 7 is in the plural. It doesn't just say you have mercy, loving kindness, and you're good. You've been good. No, it's all in the plural. Talks about here the multitude at the end of verse 7. The multitude of his loving kindness. God, as we just heard tonight from a testimony, he is overflowing in love. He really is. You know what's funny to me a lot of times? Whether it's here or in prison, you get less reaction when you preach about how much God loves people and has mercy and goodness than you do on other subjects, which is funny to me because I think we really have a hard time believing that. But we've got to believe it. And that's what he's saying here. And remind the Lord of it. But he's the multitude of his loving kindness, overflowing with love. He talks about his great goodness. It's abundant no shortage of his goodness and his mercies, full of mercy God is. You can never think about that too much. You can get so run down on how you are or aren't living or just not thinking about the Lord at all that we need to be meditating on these things, don't we? And reminding ourselves of them, the goodness of God. And especially, I would say, we need to be thinking about all that when things look bleak. So if you would, put something there. You're going to have to keep something in Isaiah because we'll be going back and forth a little bit. But if you would turn over to Lamentations, which is right in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So here's Jeremiah's called the weeping prophet, and he's weeping because he did see with his eyes Jerusalem wasted. The same thing we're looking at here with Isaiah. So in Lamentations 3, in beginning in verses 1 to 3, he says, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath, in other words, I saw this rod hit this town, this city, Jerusalem. And he hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not light. And look what he says. Have you ever felt this way? Verse 3, surely against me he is turned. He turns his hand against me all the day. I mean, it doesn't get much darker than that, does it? And we'll pick it back up down in verse 13. It says, he has caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunken with wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel stones and he has covered me with ashes. And you have removed my soul. We talked about the peace of God. Look what the prophet writes. You have removed my soul far off from peace. So far away, I forgot what it was like to prosper. I forgot prosperity, he says. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, he says, my soul has them still in remembrance. And it's humbled me, he's saying. But praise God, there's not a period there, is there? Hallelujah. Because look what he says beginning in verse 21. This is what we need to do when you're in a bad way, when your world seems like it's collapsed around you. Verse 21, but this I recall to my mind, and therefore, now he had just said his hope was gone, perished, he said in verse 18. But he says, hey, therefore I have hope. And what is it he remembers? What is it he recalls? Verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. And because of that, he says, will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. 
It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sits alone and keeps silence because he is born in upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He gives his cheek to him that smites him. He is filled full with reproach. But look what he says at verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. And then down in verse 40 and 41, it's a song we sing. And it's a great song. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. And let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God who is in the heavens. Now look, if your life feels like it's collapsed, and that could be teenagers. I'm saying the teenage suicide rate in this nation is high. They're dealing with a lot of darkness in their lives. That's someone in here. If that's the way it seems for you, there is yet hope. Because, listen, the vision God gives is one of hope. The vision the devil gives is one of despair. And take your life. That's the vision he puts before you in the future. And why bother, young person? So why feel that way? There's still hope in God. You've got to recall because, listen, you have to remember, it's that way a lot of times for God's people, is it not? In the Bible and in church history and a lot of times in our own lives. I've had several times for myself where things got so dark, I'm thinking, I can't imagine things getting any darker. I see no way out of this. And I felt literally like God had forsaken me. No hope. And yet God brings you through. Then you look back and you realize, man, his hand was on me the whole time. Here's something I needed to learn. And I didn't understand it at the time I went through that. I thought his hand had left me. No, it hadn't. And that's what we need to remember. It's that way for God's people because it's not that it's always chastisement. Sometimes it is, isn't it, when things seem hopeless. It was that way for David. David has his family turn on him. He's got to leave the city. And it talks about he is going out of that city up that hill with his head down, covered, weeping. Oh, I'm sure it, he's thinking it couldn't be any worse than this, right? Or Job, you put yourself, now that's just a trial. So we're not talking that this is all because of sin. It could, David's case, it was. But what about Job? Loses everything. His seven children. I couldn't imagine losing my children in a day and everything I possessed. And not only that, I'm so sick, I can't, I can't even stand that I'm alive. I just want to die. Job's going through that all at once. And he's got a wife that's telling him to curse God. You think that he wasn't battling, I'm forsaken of the Lord? Had to deal with that? That the enemy's not coming after him? I guarantee you he was. Or what about Joseph? God's given him these promises, and it seems like things are whatever, and next thing you know, he's sold into slavery. That's bad enough. Gets favor in Potiphar's house, and his wife tries to seduce him. He does what's right. He's thrown in jail. Gets down there. You know, God's giving him favor there. It looks like he's going to get out, and the door shuts on him again. What must that man have been thinking? Here I thought God was with me. How could he be with me? How are these things happening to me? So he says here in Lamentations, we have to recall this to mind, verse 21. And that means literally to turn it over in your heart. You've got to think about this. Think about what he's saying there. Turn it over. It'll give you hope. 
So whatever is causing your circumstances, there is hope. Because he goes on to say, the Lord's mercies and compassions, verse 22, they never fail. Isn't that what it says there? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. They never fail. And that word means they are never exhausted. They never run out. If from God's side, his compassions and mercy are limitless towards his people. They never run out. And we also need to remember that the Lord is my portion, verse 24, saith my soul. And because of that, I will hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good unto those that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. If you seek the Lord and it's in your heart and you're bothered by your circumstances, he's saying right there, you just need to wait. There's hope. Things will turn around. That's the promise that you're given there. And also, we can know this. In verse 31, he says, you think you're cast off, but what does it say in verse 31? The Lord will not cast off forever, will he? It may seem that way, but it says he won't cast off forever. So there's two things here, going back to Isaiah, if you would, Isaiah 63, verse 7. There's two things he's mentioning here in verse 7 that the Lord has done. And I think it comes through a little clearer. I'm not big on the NIV translation, but sometimes it helps. And in this case, I think it does. And the NIV translates Isaiah 63, 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. So he's saying, first of all, there are deeds that the Lord has done of loving kindness and they are to be praised. Things we've experienced of his loving kindness were to praise them and the many good things, the abundant goodness that he has done upon us. So he's met those needs and given us his goodness because of his mercy and his loving kindness. And that's the way God operates. He'll get us a lot of times where we're in dire straits. He allows that to happen, sometimes because of our faults, sometimes not. And then when we cry out and look to him, he gives deliverance. And that is supposed to issue in praise for his loving kindness and his mercy. Okay, so put something there and turn back to Psalm 107. And that's exactly what Psalm 107 is saying. So we're saying here that Psalm 63, the way you begin is to remember and to remind and to praise God for his goodness, his mercy, and his loving kindness. In Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes, O give thanks unto the Lord. Why? For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And here's another song we sing. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so what? Give thanks unto the Lord is what he's saying. Whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Has that happened for us? Amen. Let the redeemed say so. Look down in verses 8 and 9. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with what? With goodness is what God does. And then look, here's how he shows how God works. So verse 17, and we could read the whole psalm, but verse 17, he says, Fools, because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities, they're afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. And when that happens then, it says, Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, 
and he saves them out of their distresses. They think it's all over. And what does he do? Verse 20, he sends his word. That's the mercy and goodness of God. And healed them, delivered them from their destructions. And the psalmist writes in verse 21, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Has God ever done that to you? Have you ever been afflicted for whatever reason and cried out to him and he sends his word and heals you? Amen. And he's saying we should praise the Lord for that. And we do. He goes on to say in verse 22, and let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Then he brings up another case. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises a stormy wind, which lifts up the ways thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, and they are at their wit's end. God, what's happening here? We're going to perish. That's what the disciples said to Jesus. They're at their wit's end. Don't you care that we perish? And what does he say happens? Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And what does the Lord do? Brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. And then they are glad because they be quiet. So he brings them into their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works unto the children of men. Amen. And look how he ends in verses 40 to 43. It says, He pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. That's what he does to the proud is what he's saying there. But look what he does. Here's the ways of God, verse 41. Yet he will set the poor on high from affliction and make him families like a flock. In other words, he blesses the poor and the needy. And look what it says, verse 42. The righteous, they understand what's going on. They see it and they rejoice and all iniquity has to shut its mouth. Look in verse 43. So here's a little wisdom, he says. Who is wise and will observe these things? The men in the ships that cry out. The people that are sick and cry out. And God sends his word. He says, people will observe those things. The righteous will learn something from that. And what will they learn? It says, even they will understand what? The loving kindness of the Lord. The wicked don't see that. But us, the righteous, we see the loving kindness of God and how he delivers us from our trials. That's the way he works. So back to Isaiah. So he says, according to the multitude of thy loving kindness, what do we have to be thankful for, right? I mean, food, family, friends, breath, a day like today, freedom from war, the freedom to worship here, Bibles that give us truth that we can know how to be set free. Amen. Our assembly here, people that'll pray for you when you're in that distress, that'll pray with you. Everyone doesn't have that. When you're in trouble, fellowship, and on and on and on. Is God not good to us? I mean, he really is. He's poured out his loving kindness. And so we could all have our list and, and raise our hands and share testimonies to say, here's how I've experienced the loving kindness of the Lord. And some of the list might be a little shorter. They've just known the Lord for a short time. But people that have known the Lord 20, 30 years, it ought to be a book you probably couldn't stop writing without your hand cramping, right? If you've walked with the Lord that long. 
a list that would never end. It's Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all thy diseases. He redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies and satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Amen. And what is the greatest love, goodness, and mercy God has ever shown us? Is it not John 3.16? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his most treasured possession, that everyone that believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His greatest gift. The goodness of God, it says, leads us to repentance. And we need to praise him for that. Otherwise, we would have just continued in sin and perished. But like we said Sunday, he didn't wait for us to turn to him before he turned to us. He didn't wait for us to become lovable before he loved us because God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he showed love to us. We talked about, like I said, he loved us and died for us when we were his enemies, when we were living selfish lives. Could have cared less about him and his law and his ways, right? That's when God came to us. His love to us in that while we were enemies, he died on our behalf. So he didn't wait for us to get sobered up and to walk five old ladies across the street before he saved us, right? Before he died for us. No, he did it while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, right? So here we are in Isaiah 63, 7, and let's move on to verse 8. Because God said, surely they are my people. Children that will not lie, so he was their savior. And the emphasis in the original language on that, in that sentence is my. Surely they are my people. God says truly they are my people. And so we need to understand if we have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a special treasure to him. We are a special treasure to him. We sing this song, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now, this is all of us in here, and do we think of ourselves that way, though? A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we sing the song, we say, a peculiar people. Oh, what does that mean, peculiar? I mean, I think some of you in here are a little peculiar, and you probably <laughs> think I am, but that's not what it's saying. That word peculiar means a people for God's own possession. That's a little different, isn't it? A peculiar people? Yeah. Doesn't go well in English in America this, this day. But a people of God's own possession? Oh, that's a blessing. That you should show forth the praises. What does that mean, show forth the praises? It means to proclaim the excellencies of our God. This one that has made us his special treasure. Show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And man, we used to sing that song, I mean, all the time. We had that on an endless loop at, on the praises here, didn't we? And every time Terry Murphy, we get to that called you out of darkness into his life, that was when the big holler would come, wasn't it, brother? And I liked that. That always encouraged me because I thought that is a blessing because that's the way it was for me. Out of darkness into his marvelous life. Show forth the praises of that. I mean, I love that song. It's a great song. A people for God's own possession. 
And let me ask you, how highly does God value you and I as his possession? Have you ever thought about that? How highly does he value us? And one time, uh, me and my brother Joel got in a fight back when we were teenagers. <laughs> we didn't like each other too well back then. I mean, we got into a pretty good fight. Anyways, uh, he had this older neighbor who was two years older than me that lived up the street, all right? So we got in this fight, and uh, I'm underneath my car working on my car, and all of a sudden I feel somebody kick my foot. And I'm looking. Well, here it's that neighbor. He's up there. And he's like, I'm going to tell you what. He goes, I want you to get out from that car. I'm like, why? <laughs> I'm not getting that real quick. You seem pretty upset. <laughs> and I said, what's up? He goes, well, I'm just going to let you know. He goes, Joel's my friend. You mess with him, you're messing with me. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to mess with you right now because I do think you are peculiar and half crazy. Because <laughs> this guy was. He actually got in a fight with somebody and tried to bite his ear off. He's like Mike Tyson. So I wasn't going to mess with him then because I wasn't that upset. But what I'm saying is, you mess with me and you mess with him, you're messing with me. And that's what God says. Did you know that? That's his attitude. Zechariah 2.8 says this, For the Lord who rules over all says to me that for his own glory... He has sent me to the nations that plundered you. This is what he says at the end of Zechariah 2.8. For anyone who touches you touches the pupil of his eye. God says, anybody that touches you touches the pupil of his eye, of God's eye. And most translations will say the apple of his eye. But the Hebrew word is pupil. And here's the significance of that. How valuable is your eyeball? How much would you give me for both of your eyeballs to give them to me? Do I have enough money to get them from anybody? You'd be crazy. Five billion dollars, I wouldn't give up both of my eyes. Like Ray Comfort used to say, offer me a million, I might give you one of them. Because I could still see out of one. But both of them, you don't have that much money. And he's saying we are, and the pupil is a very sensitive thing. You ever been touched in your eye, had somebody poke in your eye? Man, that shuts everything down, doesn't it? until that pain goes away. And that's what he says we are. How valuable are we as his peculiar treasure? We're the pupil of his eye. You touch that, it's valuable, it's sensitive. There's going to be a reaction, is what he's saying. You touch me, and he says, you're touching my most treasured possession, is what the Lord says. And that's why he says, surely they are my people. That's no small thing for God to say that about us, that we are his people. So he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie, and so he was their Savior. And children that will not lie means children that won't be disloyal. And disloyal to what? God had made a covenant with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And here's what was said, Exodus 24. You don't have to turn there. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And that's the covenant they made with him. They're saying, we will be loyal to you. And he's saying here about them, children that will not lie. And he took blood. Moses took blood when they made that covenant with God. And it says he took the blood of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning these words. So he's saying, hey, these are my people, children that will not be disloyal. And he says, so I will be their Savior. And Savior means deliverer. And let me ask you, did God keep his end of that deal? with those people? Has he always kept it with us? 
Can we honestly ever say if our hearts were right and we prayed and trusted the Lord that he didn't come through? We can't say that. He said he would be our savior, our healer, our deliverer. He's always faithful from his end. But were they really loyal? They weren't, were they? They didn't keep their end of the bargain. But yet God still kept his. He still always showed love, mercy, and goodness to Israel, just like he's done that for us. So what I want to say is, what I talked about Sunday, I want to repeat that when we give ourselves and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a special relationship with him. We become united to him, as we talked about in Ephesians, as husband and wife, that type of relationship. And I'm saying, she may not always think it, but my wife is a special possession to me. And that's the way it says we are with God. He says, husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. That's us. And gave himself for it. And he went on to say, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He loves us as much as he would love himself. That's amazing, is it not? Somebody that's got a good husband and wife relationship and that wife thinks, man, my husband just lavishes everything on me, treats me great and all that. And God is infinitely more than that. That's just the type we can look at. So we're so united to Christ, as I said, that anything we do, it's the same as him doing it even with our bodies. And that's why we have 1 Corinthians 6. It says this, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? He says, God forbid. You're united to the Lord. And you're going to take your bodies? I mean, he's talking about our flesh, not just our spirit. And you're going to unite that, a body of Christ, unite that to a harlot? He says, God forbid. Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body, for two saith he shall be one flesh. Look what he says, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We're joined to him. He cares for us. We're his precious, treasured possession above all else. And so that's why we have verse 9 here. He says what? As he goes on to say, so in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them, and in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. So, you know, almost in a sickening way, we have these politicians will say, I feel your pain. I mean, really. So, we're living in this I feel your pain emotional society today, right? I mean, you watch Chopped, Extreme Home Makeover, any of those kind of shows, right? It's all this... I feel your pain, and they're crying, and all that kind of stuff, right? There is no sacrifice, true sacrifice in love in any of that, right? But God really did. He had to sacrifice to enter into our pain, but he really does enter into our pain. He really does have true sympathy. God is not a politician, and he is not a man that he should lie. And if he says he's afflicted with our affliction, he really is. He's not trying to get our vote. He doesn't need our vote. And so that's the way he is with his people. Exodus 3 says this, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Now, listen, the story of Israel there, that really happened. And God really did look down and see the affliction of his people and the sorrow of his people and said, I'm going to go down there and help them. It's a real thing. And so he sees the affliction and sorrow, whatever trial you're going through, for whatever reason. If you're his, he's not up there like he doesn't care. It may seem that way, but that's why we just read what we read. And if he did it once, he will always do it. And your affliction is no greater than something someone else hasn't experienced, especially the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says there is no temptation, no testing has taken you, but such as is common to man. So sometimes we think, man, nobody's gone through what I've gone through. Somebody has. If no one else, the Lord Jesus Christ has. He took temptation and testing and sorrow and happened to feel like he's abandoned by God to the nth degree. So he knows. So when we're afflicted, Jesus is afflicted. And we know that from Acts 9. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he, Paul, Saul said to him from the ground, Lord, who are you? He said, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. Saul never seen him before. Who is he persecuting? But he's saying, when you're messing with the church, Saul, you're persecuting me. That's what he's telling us there. And so... Whether you believe it or not, Jesus does feel your pain, if I can say that. And God just doesn't leave us with the thought that he cares about us. Not just a word, yeah, I care about you, and that's all he does. So when you're going through a tough time, right? Sometimes it's nice somebody sends you a text, or they'll write, or they'll give you a phone call to let you know they're thinking about you. But what do you need sometimes, though, when you're going through a trial? You need more than just... Somebody off in a distance somewhere, don't you? Don't you need somebody's presence to be with you? Isn't that what you need? Because it's comforting in a lot of ways when you're going through affliction, right? He's over. Now, my little boy would not go down in the basement unless somebody was with him because he's scared in the dark, didn't want to be down there or whatever, right? And that's just, you just somebody's with you. It's comforting. Or you got to go someplace and deal with the problem sometimes. You say, hey, do you mind going with me? Even if you just sit out in the car just having somebody with you or a loss of loved ones. Or when you're going through a serious illness, just having someone there, just their presence there is comforting, is it not? And that's what God says. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He knows how to comfort us. And that's why it says in verse 9 there that the angel of his presence saved them. His presence was with him. So he didn't just tell them, as we talked a few weeks back, to go to Canaan. He himself went with them and took them in. His presence was there with him. So would you turn to Exodus 23? So here's what he's talking about that we just read in Isaiah. Exodus 23, verse 20. He says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, 
and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angels shall go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So he's saying there, just like we talked about in verse 22, he says, if your enemies will become mine enemies, your adversaries, because you are my people, will be my adversaries. So people that started picking on Israel, they were doing what? They were picking on the wrong group, weren't they? Because now they have the God of heaven as their adversary and as their enemy. And you don't want that because that's a losing proposition every time. So listen, when God looks down and sees his people, sees us being afflicted by the devil through sickness or demonic oppression, or he's working through men, flesh and blood, as we've been talking about in Ephesians 6, and he sees them oppressing you or dealing unjustly with you or just the circumstances the devil brings in your life, you don't have to think he doesn't care or he won't come to your aid. So it may seem like, man, I am crying day and night for deliverance. And nothing seems to be happening, and there's no help. And does that mean God doesn't care and he won't come and help? Because Luke 18, Jesus said this, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear along with them? He says, I'll tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So it may seem that we are crying out day and night, and nothing seems to change. Long time sometimes, isn't it? Pray day and night. And nothing seems to change. But God says, I promise I will bring relief speedily. And the word means in a short time or quickly. The problem is, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way it seems, doesn't it? But here's the thing we need to remember that we used to hear a lot of, right? It may not seem like God comes when you want him to, but he, if you're trusting him, he always comes on time. Amen? He does. He'll show up right when you need him, like the cavalry in the movies. He's right there. And that's what Jesus promises us in the new covenant. He says he will be with us in our trials. Matthew 28, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. No matter where you go, he's with you. Hebrews 13 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he says... I will never leave you nor forsake you. God promises us that I'll never leave you or forsake you. What a promise. So that we, as a result of that, may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Well, I can't see him touch him feeling, but he's saying by his word, I can trust his word. I don't know where he's at. I can't feel, but he says he is here. He's my helper. And therefore, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And they've got some bad plans sometimes to do unto you. So, you know, Paul was in trouble when he was on that ship heading to Rome. That ship got in a bad storm. So bad. Now, we're talking about at times it seems like there's no hope. And that's what happened there. It says in Acts 27, 20, And when neither sun nor stars in many days, this went on for a long time, appeared, and no small tempest lay on us. So, it's just total darkness. No sun, no stars. It says for many days and no small tempest. A huge storm taking that ship up and down and waves and rain went on for a long time. And here's sailors. It says all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Like we read in Lamentations, all the hope was gone. Seemed like it is all over with. 
Everybody on that ship is saying their hearts sank and they despaired of life. They're thinking, what are my wife and kids going to do without me? That's where they're at, right? All except for one. One person on that ship who was God's special treasure, knew that he was the apple of God's eye and that God saw their affliction. The man that knew his Bible, Paul the Pharisee, he would have known that Bible left and right. He knew Psalm 107, could have quoted the whole thing. And here's what he said to those men, right after it says that all hope was taken away. He said, I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am. He knew who he was. He knew that he was God's special treasure in whom I serve. This angel said, Fear not, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given you all them that sail with you. Wherefore, sirs, Paul tells them again, be of good cheer. And I'll bet they didn't crack a smile when he said that. But he knew something they didn't know. Be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. And I'll tell you what, those men, if they never thanked Paul, they should have. Because the fact he was on that ship is what gave them their lives. They'd have lost it otherwise. So Paul's mercy was their mercy, wasn't it? So back in Isaiah, if you go back there, Isaiah 63 and verse 9, it says this, The angel of his presence saved them, and it says, In his love and in his pity he did what for them? He redeemed them. Did he not? Redeemed, he buyed back. Ransomed them from slavery is what that word means. And what an expense he had to pay to redeem us. Now, with them, what was the price? What was the price of their redemption? It was a lamb. But for us, it was the Son of God. And the price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a price for us to be ransomed. That was the ransom price. Blood. Perfect blood. A perfect life lived. Not just any blood. Galatians says this, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption of sons. So we're able to call ourselves sons of God and to be treated as a son of God, to be treated as the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're clothed in his righteousness, as we've talked about, right? God looks at us and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, especially when we pray in his name. So the ransom was prayed. We're his children. And look what it says there at the end of verse 9. We'll end with this. It says, he bare them and carried them all the days of old. And what does that mean, he bare them? It means he lifted them up. They were afflicted. They needed help. And he bore them up, lifted them up, and carried them. And he does the same thing for us. So if you're here today, tonight, and not everyone is, but some are, I believe. That's why the Lord's got me preaching his message. I don't know who you are. But praise God, if you're spiritually, physically, or emotionally burdened and worn out, here's what Jesus says. He says he bore them up. He lifted them up and carried them along. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. He says, I will gather you in my arms and I will give you rest. And that's what it says in Deuteronomy 33, 27. It says, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath 
are the everlasting arms. And that's the verse that we get that song leaning on the everlasting arms from. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. And he goes on to say, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. Because he says, I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on those everlasting arms. And that's where we need to be in our trials. And even when we're not in a trial. So if you could, we just turn to one last verse in Deuteronomy 32. So he had said he would bear them up. And that's what he says here in Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 9. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, For the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. Ah, here's what we've talked about earlier. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, and bears them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. Verse 13, he made him ride on the high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of the fields. He made him suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. And look what it's talking about there in verse 11. The eagle stirs up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreads abroad her wings, and takes them and bears them on her wings. And you know what that's talking about? Those birds got to learn how to fly, those little birds. They don't want to get out of that nest. They like being comfortable. So that mother eagle will flutter that, get that nest stirred up, and those birds are falling out of that, and they're like, ah, they're screaming, we're going to die. And that's us, isn't it? And that's the picture. And it says that eagle spreads out its wings and flies down and scoops that little bird up, and it thought it was done. But you know what? The, this, this is how I heard it works. The eagle takes them right back up, and guess what? Drops them again. Ah! Because what? They got to learn. They got to learn to trust. They got to learn how to fly. And that's what God is doing to us. He'll get us in situations, in distressful situations, where it looks like he's forsaken, and we're crying out to him, why are you doing this? I'm going to splat. And all the whole time, he's got his wing underneath you. He's bearing you up like he did Israel. He's saying, oh, I was right there all along. You thought it was all over, and it wasn't. I was there, but guess what? I'm taking you back up. I'm going to drop you again, maybe in a different way. And you'll be screaming again. And eventually, you'll start learning, you can trust me, that I will be there. You can't see me. I'm there the whole time, and I'll get you through because of my goodness and my loving kindness and my mercy. And when you're crying out, don't think I don't know it because the title of the message is, and we'll end with this, he says, in all of their afflictions, I was afflicted. He's there right there to help us, right? We can't see him, but he's right there being afflicted and he'll deliver us from the snare of the fowler. Will he not? Because our God is faithful. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again for the promises and, and how we can know you through your word and what kind of God you are, that you are a God of loving kindness and tender mercies that never end, Lord. Those mercies and compassion of yours, they never fail, even when at times it seems like they have failed for us. We just thank you, Father, that you are with us, that you have kept us, that you have borne us along on your wings and you're just trying to help us to grow.
for your glory. And I just ask you'll continue to do that work. I just ask, Lord, for anyone here that this word, they needed this word, and it will just be an encouragement to them. And for all of us that will just remember who you are, a God that is afflicted with his people and will come and help them and be with them. And we thank you for that revelation of your word, and we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.